Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're talking about the life and music of David Crosby, who died last week at the age of 81. I'll be joined by David Brown, author of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, the wild definitive saga of rock's greatest supergroup. Also joining me is Andy Green, who interviewed Crosby many times himself. As we go through this story, we'll also play a few clips from Andy's last two interviews with Crosby. Just last week, we did a tribute for Jeff Beck, and we had Mike Campbell of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on, and he said, I don't want to think about what's up for the next five years, but we'll take it as it comes. In terms of rock star deaths, and then just a few days later, we lose an absolute giant of rock and roll and of the 60s, David Crosby. Let's start at the beginning. I mean, he was born to kind of an old money family. Although the access to the old money seemed weirdly intermittent, but his dad was a very accomplished cinematographer and photographer. He did the cinematography for High Noon. He won an Oscar, like one of the first Oscars. It's funny because while Crosby's talent for music was evident, one of his original thoughts was, hey, I have an end in Hollywood. I can go to Hollywood and be an actor. Basically, his original goal was to be a Nepo baby in Hollywood. <laughs> that didn't quite work out. But one of the things, reading your book, David, and reading Crosby's first memoir, which is so good, this was a guy with a truly natural sort of God-given gift for vocal harmony. He was singing vocal harmony, apparently without even trying it, like age six, which is so interesting. And he had a very interesting musical background, too. He did not really grow up with rock and roll, even though he was a teenager when rock and roll was coming around. He told me in one of my interviews with him, yeah, he didn't really listen much to like Chuck Berry. He was listening to Bach, and he was listening to jazz. So he had a very interesting relationship right from the beginning with choral music and unconventional chords and tunings. That was really the foundation for everything in his music, when he eventually got into it and, and ditched the acting. And his brother, Ethan Crosby, was actually the one who taught him guitar and got him involved in the folk scene. That's true. In the whole L.A. area, his brother, Ethan, who unfortunately... He died by suicide, yeah much later. But yeah, I think with Crosby, he, Crosby also grew up feeling, it was complicated. His father wasn't around much because he was flying around making documentaries a lot. And he was apparently kind of a chilly guy, maybe in a way, in that sort of reserved way of, of parents from that World War II era. David was a little overweight growing up, had a lot of issues. And I think one of the things that appealed to him about music as did a, with a lot of people, when he started singing and playing, he realized he could be popular. All of those neuroses and things could fall away. And he had a lot of them g going into the whole music scene. And it sort of allayed some of those fears of his. In his memoir, he says that when he, because he would actually sing a harmony in his family parlor or whatever, they'd sing folk songs. And he said, when we sang, we were in harmony and at no other time we were, which was a really telling kind of thing for his whole life was the only time that the sort of chaos of his universe was pulled into order was when he sang, which is this really interesting contrast. And he was incredibly badly behaved from practically from birth. It seems like he was <laughs> always in trouble. There's yeah. a, a great childhood picture of him in the documentary, Remember My Name. He looks so mischievous. And he was in trouble a lot, up to the point of committing burglaries for fun when he was in junior college. He had a lifelong hatred of authority. He was a rule breaker. He relished breaking rules and getting in trouble from a very young age. But through a big chunk of his life, he just pushed back against 
the mainstream and what he saw as just any institution in a very big way. He was thrown out of prep school, went to regular high school. He said he didn't really have to do anything in the final two years of high school because he had learned it all in prep school anyway. He went to junior college, but eventually ended up on the New York folk scene briefly. And then from there went, I guess there were a few stops along the way, but eventually ended up in the L.A. folk scene. And he was the only guy or one of the only guys on the scene who started singing Beatles songs. And he came to the attention of two other guys on the L.A. folk scene, and that was Roger McGuinn and Gene Clark. It's funny because he met McGuinn a little bit earlier when McGuinn was playing the Ashgrove, one of the big L.A. folk clubs, with another band. And as I remember McGuinn telling me, even then, this was a couple of years before the Birds, probably, people were saying, don't go hang out with that Crosby guy. He's trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so they were already like, David's reputation was spreading into the music scene pretty early on. But basically, they do start the Birds. And the Birds, of course, their great innovation was helping invent folk rock. And the key moment was they actually recorded, I had forgotten this, that they recorded Mr. Tambourine Man from the demo before Bob Dylan had actually released it. Right. David was a Bob Dylan fan for a very long time. He even knew him on the folk scene in New York City, I believe. He was a huge Dylan fan. And it was just the right single at the right time. And it had changed so much. I think of Roger McGuinn's voice when I think of the birds, so often the lead vocals. When you see clips of them live, you realize how many of the prominent harmonies were actually David Crosby and how key he was to the vocal mix of that band. And also, I guess he really was coming up with most or all of the harmony arrangements. So really key to the sound of that band more than people might understand. The, the Birds were this one of those wonderful, happy accidents in rock because none of them were really rock players. <laughs> Gwyn and Crosby were the folk scene. Chris Hillman, the bass player, was from the bluegrass world. The legend around Michael Clark, the drummer, was they just hired him because he looked like a drummer. He hadn't really played much. It was just this wonderful confluence of young guys wanting to form a band, seeing Hard Day's Night when it came out, which electrified everybody, and they decided to electrify their music. And absolutely, Crosby's harmonies, starting with Tambourine Man, and you look at I Come and Stand at Every Door on one of the early Birds records. I come and stand at every door. It was the thing that really put them over the top, I think, sonically, really distinguished them from a lot of other bands. They did Nobody else it really had an amazing harmony singer of that degree, and it really, it was their trademark in a way. To take a step back, we should very quickly just explain how important the birds were, because they really were very important. First of all, it was their version of Mr. Tambourine Man that was, if not the single impetus, a huge impetus for Bob Dylan himself going electric. Yeah, and it basically ended the folk revival as it was. The solo acoustic performers, they seemed very passe just the minute that song came out. And Bob was very smart to jump on board. It was one of those songs that just, that there's the before and the after. But more importantly, what it did for rock and roll was you wouldn't have the sound of Simon and Garfunkel. You wouldn't sure. have what the Beatles did on Rubber Soul. 
it's one of those bands that I'm not sure younger people fully grasp how important they were. Yeah, in the Bob Dylan documentary, No Direction Home, he talks about turning on the radio in 1965, and there's this jangly sound on every single song. There was all these groups sounding like the birds. That included right. the Beatles. And going up to early R.E.M. owed tremendous amounts to the birds, or even going up to the 90s, all this sort of Jim Blossomy kind of jangly rock and roll of the 90s owes a ton to the birds. Super important band. But anyway, Crosby's role. David, tell me about the songs. He did write songs as well. One of the things that David brought to that band was not just harmony singing, but really, I would say, almost idiosyncratic song structures and song topics. He, again, reflecting his musical background, and, and not just in primal kind of rock and roll, uh, you know, he started writing songs that eventually ended up getting kicked out of the band, but that would have odd time signatures, like It Happens Each Day. It happens each day. would have a subject matter like triad which was basically about wanting to have a threesome <laughs> and i don't really see why can't we go on as three and he had a probably one of the weaker songs he's ever written but a fascinating one called mind gardens which is like this raga influenced drone that was on the fourth birds album younger than yesterday once upon a time there was a god even in the context of that band even as he was an architect of its sound he was pushing the envelope artistically within that band he was one of those people who starting in the birds was really fascinated with pushing rock forward in all kinds of new directions, either musically or lyrically. And he was a co-writer on things like Eight Miles High and other big hits as well. Right. And, yes. And George Harrison, by the way, thanked him for being one of the people who introduced him to Indian music. I like George particularly. For some reason, he kind of rang my bell. And uh, he was uh, just extremely nice. He me over to his house, at dinner, they hung out. I had in my suitcase a record that I'd just been given. Of Robbie Shankar. I gave it to George. That had repercussions. Uh, George Leader told me that I turned him on to Indian music. Wow. I don't think it's true. I think uh, probably a number of people did. Right. But I think he might have just been trying to be nice and make me feel good. There also is a zealot quality to him as well. He would start hanging out with the Beatles. There's that great moment, again, in Beatles press conference footage shown in the documentary where he's just happens to be behind the Beatles at the press conference, just taking it all in. But the other aspect here is that he was becoming a jerk in the eyes of the other people in the band. They, he was a little bit self-satisfied. He famously at Monterey Pop decided that it was a good time on stage during their set to talk about his views that the JFK assassination was not the work of one man. He just generally, the triad stuff, the threesome stuff, it's interesting, Roger McGuinn was not yet a born-again Christian, but would become one. And I think maybe he was finding, he was already nudging him enough that he was finding his inborn conservative streak enough that he was like, I don't, I'm not singing about this freaky shit, like, no way. <laughs> they generally were just getting annoyed with him, and then one day, famously, so Roger and Chris Hillman famously pulled up to Praz's house and 
told him that they would like him to resign from the birds. And by the way, this is something that still, at least in my experience, still bothered Cross enough that when I asked him about this in 2008, he hung up on me. And it was for a piece about L.A. in 1967. It wasn't just randomly bringing it up. These wounds ran deep, apparently. What's the thing about and, Crosby? He always just kept pushing the envelope. The whole Monterey Pop thing where he talked about the Warren Commission, you'd think that wouldn't be such a big deal. It's a hippie music festival in 1967, and he's basically saying, <laughs> something's wrong with that JFK assassination. But it did really annoy the other guys in the band. But he also, during that same weekend, he sat in with the Buffalo Springfield. Neil Young right. had, had left point, yes. temporarily. And back then... You weren't supposed to jump around in different bands. You know, if you were in one band, that was your thing. He Later on, he pioneered the idea of the loose-knit band, and you can play with anyone. Uh, and he tried that at Monterey Pop, and the other birds weren't too happy about that. And also, if you watch the Monterey Pop footage of the birds, they sound great, but he's kind of a stage hog. <laughs> I think he just, uh, like you said, it was a little bit guy maybe going to his head. And he, I think he was pushing them and I think he wanted, I think a part of him probably wanted to leave. He felt like they were holding him back. A song like Triad, which is now considered one of the great bird songs, that was rejected from their album originally. They felt it was, um, it was improper to sing that kind of thing. It's funny because in subsequent years, there were all these birds box sets that came out and things that had all of his shelved songs. And it's an amazing little list of songs that Lady Friend did. It happens each day in Triad. These are like great songs that they rejected. So I think part of him was ready to leave at the same time. He was, in some ways, he was a George Harrison of the birds, although he was more aggressive than passive aggressive. But he was in the fact that he built up all these songs that they didn't want, et cetera, et cetera. Indian music, on a certain level, it all kind of adds up. The thing about the Buffalo Springfield is that Stephen Stills was a key member, and Stephen Stills and David Crosby were starting to sort of gravitate towards each other at that time, and that was a key hint of the future. He's out of the birds. <laughs> so then two things happened. He went on this wonderful sailing trip because Peter Tork lent him $25,000 to buy a boat, <laughs> which is the like the absolute craziest hippie shit I've ever heard of. and But he also hooked up with Joni Mitchell. But I can't remember which happened first, David. What happens first is, yes, he gets a bunch of money. Other sources say he basically was paid off by Columbia to leave the birds, and they gave him a whole bunch. So there were conflicting memories where that, that uh, bundle of cash came from. And so he buys a boat, which turns to be the Maya, and he just decides to take a sailing trip down to Florida and to Coconut Grove which is becoming a real music town at the time. One of his heroes was Fred Neal, the singer-songwriter who everybody knows from probably Everybody's Talking. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear word they say. He was based down there at that point, and there was a whole thriving little music scene. And so Crosby just sailed down there and hung out and started going to uh, the Gaslight a club down there. Not the Gaslight in New York City, but there was a Gaslight in Florida. And uh, Joni was the opening act for a local singer-songwriter. And he it was one of those um, kind of amazing coincidences that, that those two people would collide, intersect in that way. Yeah. It was just an incredible kind of magical coincidence that he would happen to see her perform. And that would ultimately help launch her career. 
he fell in love with her both musically and personally. And he did take her around LA in a way that she later sort of complained about, but also did introduce her to everyone in town. And they became an item. And he ended up producing her first album. A lot of people don't think he did the greatest job with that, but he did produce her first album. And and then he was hanging out in Laurel Canyon. Crosby, Stills, and Nash starts to come about. What's funny is that their memories differ about where they first met. I sat there once with the three of them as they argued really bitterly about where they first met. It was uncomfortable. Stills claimed it was Mama Cass's. He said it wouldn't have been at Joni's because he would have been too intimidated to sing any of his songs to Joni. The roots of the group were, were, of course, with Stills and Crosby. First meeting during the Springfield days, and actually the Buffalo Springfield opened for the Birds at some shows. So they had a, a kind of a deep friendship. They were both out of work. S- Springfield had fallen apart. Crosby had been kicked out of the Birds. They were two young, hungry guys and gravitated toward each other. And originally had a duo called the Frozen Noses, which was the joke. I wonder what that refers to. (laughs) (laughs) And they were making tentative steps toward being a duo. And of course, the story was that Cass Elliott, their friend, basically knew Graham Nash and felt that maybe they were needing an additional voice in there and somehow conspired to get them all together in the same room, as Andy explained. We're not sure which room that is anymore, but they all were put together in some room at some point in in 1968, in the summer of 68, and sang together. And then Nash at the time, he was still in the Hollies, but was really bummed out at their plan to record a record of all Bob Dylan covers. And his songs weren't being used either, and he thought the Hollies were behind the times, and he was anxious for something new as well. Nash went back to, to London to do some gigs with the Hollies. And they, I guess David and Stephen had already made an ovation toward having him in the band. And just to make sure Nash didn't change his mind, Crosby went to London too and went backstage at the Hollies show. (laughs) And the other Hollies not too happy about this guy clearly standing there, like sending a message like, I'm stealing this guy from your band. (laughs) I think Mama Cass deserves probably more credit than she's gotten for having that amazing insight, for that billion-dollar A&R insight she had there. It's kind of always said in passing, but I mean, what a great, amazing sort of thing to think about, that this guy from England, from a totally different world, would be the guy to bring in the magic. As they said a million times, the moment they sang together, all three of them, they realized what they had. It It sounded like that instantly. And I think the other insight is it turns out the real deep magic of the harmonies was really just between Crosby and Nash. That was the pair, and obviously still at an important element, but they, it was the two of them that would then, they would sing on James Taylor records. And other things. Doctor, my eyes, tell me what you see. I hear that. They were amazing together, and the three were amazing together. So then they begin recording, I'm not sure, certainly one of the greatest debut albums of all time. There are a few debut albums that kind of fall into that category of the band is going to chase that debut album for the entire rest of their career for 50 years. I'm not sure there's a better example (laughs) of that, where they got it so right the first time that they never could quite get it quite as right again. 
Yeah, it's true. And it's due to all three of them, that all three of them wrote classic songs on that record. They brought really unique things to the table. And the instrumentation was all Stephen Stills besides the drums. He was just on fire at that moment. And you could hear like the exuberance and the excitement throughout that record, the discovery of that they're making, the three of them, of their combined voices, of their combined songs. And it was such a, it wasn't the lightest record, a Crosby song, Long Time Gone, one of his great songs inspired by Bobby Kennedy's assassination. And it appears to be is a, is... He really was, he was very preoccupied with the Kennedys in the 60s, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> really was. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. But, you know, there was something about that record coming out, especially in the spring of 69, a very turbulent time in America. We lost Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King in the Democratic Convention the year before. It was just a mess. And here's this record that was just this beautiful sonic landscape. It had great songs, and it just had this warm, enveloping sound to it. And I think this is an important thing about Crosby, too, is that that aspect of doing things you hadn't really heard before in rock. That really struck me the first time I heard Guinevere as a kid. I thought, wow, this is, what is this? It's almost like medieval magical choral music. Guinevere had green eyes. There's no real, there's no drums. There's no real chorus. It just floats along on this thing. And people had experimented in rock before, but that was a whole new sound that he was bringing into kind of the mainstream, really. And Wooden Chips with him. It was Wooden Chips was the co-write with the Stills and Paul Kantner of Jefferson Airplane. Of course, in a, kind of an apocalyptic song. Wooden ships on the water, very free and easy. Paul came up with the wooden ships on the water part. It was a very right. organic process. As Crosby once said, we really wrote it very together. I'm amazed we never wrote anything else together, which is, yeah, was one of the problems with this fucking band, <laughs> if you ask me. But that is that is a very classic song. I would say, so it's not a Cros song, but I, my favorite song on the album and my favorite Crosby, Stills, Nash song, period, and I think it's a Stills song, is Helplessly Hoping. Helplessly Hoping if I, do, if I had to get someone, especially someone who's kind of immune to the charms of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, of which there are some, I would definitely play them that. They are perceived as more 60s and more boomer-y than, for example, a lot of Neil Young's catalog, the guy who would soon join them. There's something about them that, that was a little bit more of their time in both good ways and bad. They, they didn't cross the barrier in the same way which is so interesting. And yet there's a lot of their music that I think anyone of any age would really respond to if they get over this sort of Woodstocky associations. But speaking of which, one of the reasons your book is so fascinating, David, is their story is just so weird. And none of it ever makes any sense. One of the things is that for reasons that are all explained, they're explained in your book, they've all explained a million times, but they never quite make sense to me. They, part of it was they wanted to have stronger live lineup. But again, what doesn't make sense is 
they didn't really need another guitarist and voice. What they needed was a rhythm section, which they eventually got. But somehow the solution to that was to get another guitar and voice who didn't really add anything to the harmony mix, but added a lot of other things was Neil Young. And he joins like the minute the album without him comes out, basically he's already in the band, right? It's basically, it's very strange. And they originally didn't want his name in the band. He had to fight for that. They still wanted to be Crosby, Stills, and Nash. (laughs) And he was like, wait a minute. And yeah, it was this, again, a confluence of everybody's needs. They needed another um, uh, musician on stage. They needed someone who could play lead guitar sometimes so that Stills could jump over to a keyboard. And Neil, we forget sometimes, but his first two albums had come out by then. And they're amazing records, but they weren't big hits at the time especially the first one. He was, I wouldn't say he was struggling, but it, it benefited him greatly to suddenly have his name attached to this supergroup. So it satisfied everybody's needs, but then of course went off in other directions that nobody p- predicted once in, became a quartet. Yeah, in the months before he joined, he was playing small clubs that were with Crazy Horse that were really low-key gigs. He wasn't he played on a monkey's record that got like the previous year as a session guitarist. He wasn't making a huge name for himself and they elevated him in such a huge way. Cause as soon as he joined, as he, as he, as he joined CSN and you know, they were CSNY, he was a household name and that launched him. And the second gig at Woodstock, of course, as we famously know, talk about putting someone on the map. <laughs> One of the key things in why Crosby, Stills and Nash just, why CSN and why CSNY are so deeply beloved, despite having what, not to offend the guy who wrote the book on them, but like the thin catalog. As an actual band, they did a lot of break-off things, but as far as, as right. an actual assemblage, whether as a trio or a quartet, the actual catalog is shockingly thin compared to almost any of their contemporaries when you look at what they actually did under those band names. It's, it's almost, <laughs> as CSNY, it's close to non-existent. It's very thin. But part of it is they, they played Woodstock and they played with Neil Young. He just didn't, he didn't allow them to film any of the parts that were in that. It, it's his second concert with them. He's just joined the group. He's not even that famous. And he throws a fit about the cameraman on stage that he's already in his first two seconds in the band. He is causing problems. But anyway, Crosby, Stills, and Nash are in that moment. They already were. It's important to understand that it truly was a supergroup. All these guys were famous to the generation that was buying records before the band started. So they already were destined for superstardom. But being part of the Woodstock film cemented them forever in the iconography of the 60s. Incredibly important. Um, They were mythological guys. They were only semi-mythological in their previous bands. I've always thought that the power of that band, especially in the beginning, the quartet, was that each of those guys was this archetype that somebody in the audience could relate to at one point or another. Stills embodied this hard-charging, hard-driving, driven guy who'd be like in the studio for three days at a time. Nash was this charming guy who, you know, uh, always had the finest taste in art and clothes and charming the, charming the women. Neil was the guy who, the non-committing, non-committal guy, went his own way. So a lot of people could relate to that, I think. And Crosby, was, he was the bad boy rebel. He's the guy who basically lived life the way he wanted to. He said whatever he wanted. He took whatever he wanted. 
And I think a lot of their audience would relate to, to that archetype as well. And I think that carried through for him for a long time. At the pinnacle of all of this, late 69, when Crosby's on top of the world, is when a tragedy happens that basically re- that reverberates through his whole life. He talked about it with me in so many interviews. The death of his girlfriend was named Christine Hinton. She was driving to the vet's office when she was taking in her cats, and there was a car accident, and she died. And Crosby was just shattered by it, just forever shattered by this loss. And it fueled a lot of his drug use and his drinking in that time period. It was this just tragedy that kept rippling through his life. And you heard it in his music from then on for a long time. His songs got very, I don't know, sullen isn't the right word, but they got very still and they felt almost numbed out. Those joyful early songs he wrote with the birds or even a deja vu, he started writing much more introspective and starker songs, lyrically and musically. So I think it really impacted on him in so many ways. Now, Deja Vu, I think he had to start recording that within weeks of the death of his girlfriend. Yeah. And that Deja Vu is, of course, the first album with Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And it has almost cut my hair, which is a Crosby classic that I find pretty dated, honestly, but still a key song. Almost cut my hair. Uh, he would always put it down. And I'm sure he did with you, Andy, as well. And if he ever brought that song up with him, he was like, that was the most juvenile thing right. I've ever written. I can't right. believe I still have to sing it. He still right. did. Yeah. But it wasn't one of uh, the, the things he held up. But what's aged wonderfully is the song Deja Vu, which Crosby wrote. And it's very complex for a pop song, and it's really, that's one of his true masterpieces. If I had ever been it before, I would probably know just what to do. Don't you? He only had two songs on that album, because there were four dudes suddenly fighting for, uh, for space on the album. That was definitely a sustainable dynamic. That was going to go on forever. And plus, they threw in a Joni Mitchell song, of course, on that. And for some reason, Stills got the sing lead on the Joni Mitchell. I don't know how that went down exactly. Then David Crosby had leftover songs and was writing new ones, and he made his first solo album, If I Could Only Remember My Name, which is some of the greatest music he ever made. And Andy, I know you did an entire interview with him going through that album recently. Yeah, I spoke with David about it in 2021 for the 50. And the guest on that record are in just insane. It's most of the Grateful Dead. It's Joni Mitchell. It's Neil Young. It's Stills and Nash. It's everybody is on that record. I was trying to survive. I had no higher goal than that. I was trying to live through the day. I, I had a girl that I loved. She was killed in a car wreck. Happens to a lot of people, and I shouldn't be whining and sniveling, but I didn't have any way to deal with it. None. I mean, I, I had never experienced anything like that. I had no, no way to, to deal with it. It just was too big for me. It crushed me like a bug. And I, uh, you know, uh, people tell me they'd find me just sitting on the floor of the studio in the CSNY sessions just prior to this, just sitting on the floor crying, weeping uncontrollably, not able to deal at all. Okay, so that's the state that I was in when I went in to do this. Now, in comes Jerry Garcia. He's lit. He's lit. His fire's on. Lights are on. He's working. He's like a decent human being with a nice heart, and he's 
funny and sound good and, and can play like God on a fucking good day. And every time he sits down with a guitar and I sit down with a guitar with him, magic happens. Magic. Not bullshit. Magic. Okay, so it's a, a strange, very conflicted environment. Here I am. I've been punched in the mouth, knocked my teeth out, and I've fallen on the ground. And then somebody ran over me with, with a tractor, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, in the same 24 hours, I'm in fucking heaven. I'm making music that I fucking love, that I believe in, that really moves me. And I'm moving the people that listen to it. So I'm doing the thing that I was put here on this earth to do, right? It's a truly strangely conflicted, you know, uh, thing. You're so strong in both directions. I mean, the maximum amount of, of happiness and a maximum amount of sadness at the same time. And it's a weird record. A lot of the songs there don't even have vocals. They have no real lyrics, but it's a stunning piece of work. It embodies everything. It's Peak Crosby in a way, in so many ways. It embodies that the choral music, the unconventional open tunings in every song, songs that don't, again, have traditional song structure necessarily, like Music is Love that starts out. The record is an example of that. Also, the, yeah, the interplay between musicians, this idea that there shouldn't be boundaries in anything in life. There shouldn't be boundaries in how you write a song. And there shouldn't be boundaries in who you make music with. There shouldn't be bands anymore. This was the period when people, the Beatles had broken up and everybody, like, you should just jam with whoever you want and it doesn't matter as long as the results are good. And if I could only remember my name, put all of that out there. In, and it's almost an amazing record to think that a major label release that in 1971 there's nothing on there that could ever be on the radio there's nothing resembling a pop hit the song laughing is incredible i was mistaken the song a cowboy movie which is his version of the crosby stills nash story We were right. 1971, that the group formed like two years earlier, it's already a myth. It's already <laughs> a cowboy movie, a grand western. The group has been a myth for almost 99.9% of its existence. It's incredible. Uh, again, that's why I love Davis Book. What other band made two albums and then spent the whole rest of their career just trying to chase a little bit of that? I mean, it's kind of the way that Crosby describes the high of heroin, which is that you're always chasing that first time. It feels like that's what they were doing musically. And cowboy movie, as Andy said, analyze that again. It's such a Crosby thing. It's his fictionalized version of the breakup of the band as outlaws. And they're broken apart by a Native American girl who comes between them and basically leads to their downfall. And that was basically his way of saying Rita Coolidge, who was with Graham Nash at the time, had been with Stills before and putting it putting the blame entirely on her in a song. And at the time the song came out, she and Nash were a couple still. Talk about pushing the envelope in the relationships. It's weird because it seems like an almost slow motion kind of destruction because it took another like, so if I could only remember, my name was 1971. It was by the late 70s when he was a full wreck in the early 80s when he was in jail. So it was a somewhat gradual dissolution for him. Yeah. 
if you talk to him about this stuff, what he always says was that the hippies were right about every single thing besides the drugs. <laughs> that we were wrong about the drugs, and he didn't figure that out till way, way too late. And as someone who experienced some of that in real time, it was sort of a horrifying thing to watch it. I saw Crosby, Stills, and Nash in the late 70s and for the first time, and Crosby was looking a little chubbier than he had, but okay. And then, like, two years later, I saw him by himself at a show in New York, and he was really kind of unkempt and slovenly looking and yawning. And that's when the drugs were really kicking. And then a couple years later, of course, they're on Live Aid, and he looked like a statue, like this immobile statue standing there, glazing with glazed eyes out in the standing audience. And so, if you were around back then, <laughs> you were watching that get you know his deterioration in a public way that really was unusual at the time a lot of rock stars were dealing with this stuff but something about crosby was really very apparent and as we keep saying there was discography wise there was a there's many years passed before crosby stills and nash let alone csny many years passed before crosby stills and nash actually released a record together as a trio but the duo of Graham Nash and David Crosby are able to work together. And they make, for me, I like the first one they made, Graham called, they really were not trying very hard with the titles. It was Graham Nash, David Crosby, and it, yeah, throwing a bone to Graham Nash because he wasn't, he got, he had to be last in Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So he's first here, Graham Nash, David Crosby. And that's a, a beautiful acoustic album. And to me, like there's times when it, it when it sounds like the shins or something like that. I feel like it would really appeal to people who like latter day indie pop. It's it's some really great stuff on that and split really evenly with songs by Graham Nash and by Crosby. I tried to reach beyond the walls you're living in. As a friend I flew a long way for Yeah, yeah, the bond that those two guys had that you referred to earlier, it was seemed like it was instantaneous. Both, both in terms of their personalities and their voices. I, we forget maybe sometimes, but in the late 60s, David, no one was cooler in rock than David Crosby. He had these fur hats and these capes. His whole look was copied by Dennis Hopper in Easy Rider. And I, I think there was a part of Nash that, that, that wanted to be, he was a lower middle class kid from England. He wanted to be cool. And I think there was that bonding with association thing. But their voices just fit together just so beautifully. And I think you hear that on those several records that they made together in the 70s. Wind on the Water is another terrific one that has, has two great Crosby songs in that period, Carry Me. And Homeward Through the Haze is a song that Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young first took a stab at the year before, during one of their many attempts at a reunion album that fell apart. And um, Crosby and Nash decided just to do it themselves. And it's actually a better version with, with the Crosby Nash version. Homeward through the I think they, they really brought out the best in each other for a while there. And they were on a real roll as a duo. The Crosby Nash records like Wind on the Water were selling better than like Tonight's the Night or Stills' albums. They seemed like they had a real future together without the mothership. It, right, it didn't yeah. last long. It is worth noting that CSNY split in two distinct camps in the mid-70s. There was the Still the Young Band, and there was Crosby and Nash. They did a big tour, famously, in 74, but it was very brief. 
TSNY, the whole thing yeah. came together to do turning point in the commercial history of rock and roll, but also like a huge sellout move that Neil predictably ended up being unhappy with. But yeah, so then they toured, then couldn't record together, and then split off into two camps. The famously ill-fated Neil Young Stills project. Neil left the tour as it was starting and sent a note, some things that begin spontaneously end that way, eat a peach, Neil. That didn't go very well. Poor Stills was forced to go back to Crosby Nash be like, hey guys, sorry about all that. Do you think maybe the three of us maybe could please? Sorry. <laughs> and they did. And they had a pretty great record. That was a big hit. In 1977. And yeah. is that, when did they get to the point where Crosby has to have his own freebasing area? He was starting to get far gone during the making of that record in Florida. Yeah. At the time, they put on a really good face about it, but we've since learned that he was starting to hole up in his room in the house and not show up for a lot. It was noticeable to a lot of people, actually, two years later at No Nukes, the series of shows, anti-nuclear benefit shows at Madison Square Garden. Crosby, Stills, Nash headlined one of those nights, and Crosby basically commandeered one of the, uh, the one of the showers in the locker rooms that the athletes use and he had one of his managers like put duct tape all around it and seal it up so he could go in there and freebase and it, that was a moment i think when so there were so many people so many rock stars at that show that was a moment that a lot of them witnessed and went what's going on here okay we all take drugs but this is a little extreme yeah, and it was so bad when they made Daylight again in 1982. It was essentially a Nash Stills record. It was almost released as that until the label insisted they put Crosby's name on it and have him sing just a little something so it's CSN. But like Timothy B. Schmidt from the Eagles was like singing his parts, essentially. Yeah, and, and when they toured with that record, they had a little room off to the side. They called it Jump Street that Crosby could go to and freebase or do whatever during the show. There were moments when he would just, he had to have it, and he would give a look to one of the roadies assigned to him that basically indicated, okay, after this song, I'm off. And it became such a problem, and they would sometimes have to reconceive set lists if Crosby suddenly didn't come back in time. It was just became a nightmare. Yeah, and Crosby became a living symbol of the excess of the 60s and the false promise of the hippie dream. The point that even Neil Young, he wrote a song called Hippie Dream that's just trashing Crosby, where he says, he says the wooden ships, they were just a hippie dream. But the wooden ships were just a hippie dream. And there's even a song on that Daylight Again CSN album from 82 called Into the Darkness. It's a Graham Nash song about Crosby and his addiction, which they didn't tell him. They were putting it on the record because he was so out of it, but he was not happy that they did. That was their habit as a group too. They would write songs about each other and put them on. They would communicate by song more better than they would sometimes, I think, face to face. And that's how they one of the ways they tried to confront Crosby. Yeah, it's actually hard to emphasize how mean Hippie Dream is. And this was after he wrote Thrasher, that is also one of the meanest songs ever written about them. The Wooden Ships are a Hippie Dream, Capsize and Excess. Another flower child goes to seed in an ether-filled room of meat hooks. It's so ugly. And this is after Thrasher is one of Neil Young's most beautiful songs. And it has all this 
poetic and thinly disguised imagery talking about all of CSN. When I saw those thrashers rolling by, looking more than two lanes wide. They had the best selection. They were poisoned with protection. They were, there was nothing that they needed, nothing left to find. They were lost in rock formations or became park bench mutations on the sidewalks and the stations. And then he, the, one of the most real lines Neil Young ever wrote, so I got bored and left them there. They were just dead weight to me. <laughs> It's so brutal. It's just a it's brutal. It's so brutal. Song. And on Ambulance Blues, one of his most beautiful songs, it could be his best song ever, he describes them as just pissing in the wind. Back in the old folky days. Yeah, it's, Neil, Neil wasn't always showing a lot of gratitude for the commercial boost no, they gave to his career. But, but he did tell Crosby, if you clean yourself up, if you get off this shit, I will make a reunion record with CSNY and Crosby credited going to jail actually with the only thing that stopped him from doing drugs was going to prison where he couldn't get drugs. And he came out clean and they recorded a record, which is one of the shittiest records of all time, but it's called American Dream. Of course, Neil won tour behind it. But Neil did fulfill his promise, but we should go back. That's where Cros hit rock bottom. He had rock bottom like a serious, it's like a Simpsons thing where you just keep hitting the bottom over and over again. He crashed his car and they found freebase equipment in it. Then he was playing a show in Texas and, and a cop who just happened to be like just patrolling around and popping his head into various venues to make sure things were okay. Smelled something that's funny. He goes into the dressing room and there's Cross with his freebase. And, um, you know, his legal troubles just started piling up and piling up. To the point where he was, yeah, and they tried to put him into rehab, and he escaped. He would leave. He was just in really bad shape, and he had to end, end up serving nine months in, in jail in Texas for it. One of the times he like escaped from rehab, he decided to turn himself into the FBI, and that's sort of where he started to take some control of his life again and some responsibility. And he served the time, man. It's it's hard to it's hard to fathom. And he joined the prison band. What was so sad, too, about when he turned himself in, he had been living on, still on that boat, that same boat, the Maya, which also was completely deteriorating and just sitting there in the water, not taking, being taken care of in that way you have to with boats. <laughs> and uh, both he and his favorite boat are just like literally rotting away. It was so sad. It really is. It's stunning. In the documentary, when he gets out of prison and his hair is cut short and he has no mustache, you literally don't recognize him at all. He's completely unrecognizable, but he was clean and he made his way back to the world. I think a key thing is after he cleaned up, CSN became just this oldies machine on the road. Every summer, the boomers came, they'd sing Teach Your Children, they'd then they'd wave their lighters and... It was a very solid living. 1994 got a liver transplant. He almost died. And I think that Nash said to him in the hospital, like, please don't leave me just with stills. And <laughs> he pulled through. They kept touring. And in 2000, they finally got Neil to agree to come back for a big nostalgia, big money reunion tour. In CSNY, they toured in 2000, in 02 and 06. And they made a ton of money. And it was a really great show each time. But also deeply, Crosby was happy to take the cash, the checks. But I think he was becoming 
uh, of all of them, the most dissatisfied with the oldies routine. He, and he would say this, even started to say it publicly. One of the things I think about him that was so amazing, even up to the last two years, is the sort of the thrill and joy he would take in like writing a new song and wanting to play it for people. You see some of that online where little clips of he'll sit down with some friends and say, hey man, I just wrote this new song. Let me play for it. And somebody filmed a little bit on a phone or something. And again, he had, he really found such pleasure in music and in trying to take it in other new directions. And it was frustrating for him. He formed a band called CPR with guitarist Jeff Pivar and James Raymond, who was his son. Big twist there with his son. One of the, because he's not a, nothing about his life is normal. This wasn't like a son he'd raised. It was a son that he, he had abandoned. He had gotten his girlfriend pregnant when he was like, what, 20 years old and skipped town and she gave up the baby for adoption. And James Raymond must be a, a very forgiving type because they, admit, they immediately bonded. It turned out James is a gifted musician. And instead of slapping his dad across the face, he formed a band with him. Just super weird. <laughs> To be honest, it's like absolutely yeah, wild. They went out and played clubs as CPR, like tiny clubs with mainly new songs. It was something that Stills and Nash were certainly, they weren't doing that bad at that time at all. I wouldn't speak for James Raymond, but I think there's something about that embrace that he had of his father's spite, all that, that really gets to something about Crosby, which is he could absolutely drive people up a wall. He could be such a contrarian, he could be so obstinate and, uh, and be really difficult. And he would be the first to admit it. And yet people still loved him, you know, they, whether it was other musicians or his fans. They were very forgiving. They found him just uh, uh, a, a, a lovable bear of a kind of guy. But what happens is by 2015 or so, he has pissed off Neil. He fell out with Nash. So the groups end. And that should have been awful for him, but it freed him. What happened is CSNY, they last toured in 06, but they still played together at the occasional charity gig. They performed at the Bridge School Benefit in 2013. And then Cross was talking to a Boise, Idaho newspaper. He claimed later he thought that they had gone off the record. And he was asked about Neil's new girlfriend, Daryl Hannah. He called her a purely poisonous predator. And that went viral. And Neil was understandably very upset about that. And no matter how many times Cross apologized, begged for forgiveness in public and private, it was not happening. And he got into a falling out that was with Nash. That was never fully explained by either of them, but they stopped speaking and that ended CSNY. Their last performance was Silent Night in front of a Christmas tree to Obama on the National Mall. It's the worst performance you've ever seen in your life. And they got into a shoving match in the aftermath. Right. Yeah, yeah, there there was a big problem with the microphones. They couldn't hear each other. Their voices were getting a little creaky as it was, but it didn't help that they that the sound system was all screwed up. And and yeah, it was an unfortunate finale for that band. It'd be nice if they'd gone out in a better way. It's so symbolic that they started by being in harmony so effortlessly and ended by not even being able, technical problems aside, but they ended up not even able to harmonize on Silent Night and then broke up forever. There's a certain uh, dark poetry to that. But as right. you were going to say, Andy, it did free up Crosby for 
the what we can now say was the remarkable final chapter of his career. Yeah, he just got together. It was a Michael League from Snarky Puppy, this sort of cool fusiony band, and he at he just started pounding it out these records about one a year, and he would tour and do a set of largely new songs. It was a really bold maneuver, and the albums were very solid. It comes from this, Andy. It's pretty simple. I got a certain amount of time. Yeah. We don't know how much. I got two weeks. I got 10 years. It's not really significant how much it is, what you do with it. So for however much time I got, I got one place I can contribute, one place I can make things better. It's me doing the music. I'm trying to do it the best I can, as much as I can, until I can. There's two things that are, I think he was most public about as far as his musical taste. One was that he absolutely fucking hated the Doors, despised the Doors, some of which may have been a personal animus for Jim Morrison for various reasons. And so that was the first thing. The second thing was that he absolutely loved Steely Dan. He jumped at the chance to sing backing vocals one time at one Steely Dan show. They reshaped really his musical sensibilities and or matched the ones he already had. And if you listen to these last, these, this run of soul albums, the influence of Steely Dan is very apparent to the point where he got Fagin to write lyrics to a song called Rodriguez for the Night. And then Cross and his collaborators really fashioned it into a very convincing Steely Dan song. So Donald played here with the band, and I went down to see him because I'm a huge fan of theirs. And their top three crew, their road manager, tour, tour manager, and, and the next two guys under him, all used to work for me. Okay. <laughs> right. And so they, I, I got a, you know, kind of a, like a really good pass into their seat. And we're at Soundcheck, and one of those guys had told Donald that I used to sing home and last with my band with CPR. I know this super highway, this song. So I said, Hey, I hear you sing home and last. I said, Yeah, I used to. He says, How about you? Why don't you sing home and last? And I said, I'm chicken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole band started laughing because they're all sitting around the right. I said, I'm chicken, Donald. I don't, I haven't sung it in 10 years. It's your song. I don't, singing it in front of you with your band. Ah, I'm scared. I'm chicken. I, I'll just sing the choruses with the girls. And uh, he said, what do I got to do? Learn wooden ships? And I said, you don't know wooden ships. He says, I can learn it in 10 seconds. It's got only got four changes. <laughs> and uh, so then I know he's fucking with me, right? Yeah. So uh, we go on. We do it. I sing with the girls in the chorus. And it's really good. So then I get a fucking message at like, oh, one o'clock in the morning, which means it's four o'clock in the morning in New York. And it says, you know, Wooden Ships is actually a really good fucking song. I'm going to tell the band and the girls to learn it. And I think to myself, he's fucking with me. I've never heard of him learning anybody else's songs. He doesn't do that. Just not going to happen. What a great fucking thought it is, but there's no fucking way that's going to happen. I tell him, he, I, I say, uh, yeah, right, sure. And he says, no, I mean it. He says, come to New York to the Beacon and sing it with us. So I do. I get there and they have learned it and they know it really well and they've written horn parts and it's just smoking. I walk out and the whole audience goes absolutely batshit fucking crazy 
And then we just practically do structural damage to the building. It was really good. It was really good. So I, I, uh, I got closer. I've been, you know, tr- cultivating a relationship with Donald. He's, he's a, a private and, and not openly. He doesn't wear his heart on his shoulder, you know, on his sleeve. Uh, but he's really in there. He's a brilliant guy. Oh, yeah. So I have been trying to make friends with him because I fucking admire him beyond belief, man. Asia and, and Gaucho are, are probably two of my favorite records of life in my life. They're both in my top ten. So uh, he finally relented. And, uh, you know, I've been saying I wanted to write with him. And he sent us a set of lyrics. And we steely jammed him right into the fucking middle. <laughs> we took it and, and made a really, it's called Rodriguez. And it's a, you know, a, a story song. And it's really fun. Yeah. But, you know, I count myself hugely lucky, man, in life for all the people that I've gotten to make music with. I've gotten to make music with some stunningly talented people. And it's just a joy. I'm enormously grateful. I think he's one of the most talented guys in the world. What's also fascinating about all these records that he made over the last roughly decade is that each one of them was different, sonically. He had this record called Lighthouse that was largely acoustic. Was it something she said about a dream she had? He had the Cross record and others that, that had that more Steely Dan yacht rock kind of thing. He did one called Here If You Listen with Michael League and these two singer-songwriters, Becca Stevens and Michelle Willis that was, again, completely different from everything else. So he wasn't recreating the CSN sound record after record. He was even like switching it up on every one of these new records that he made, which is also remarkable. Yeah, and what's so stunning to me was his singing voice, that despite everything he had done to his body, no matter how much he aged, when he sang, it was 1970. It was completely undiminished. And even he was astounded by what was happening as he sang. But unlike Stills, who lost his voice, just Cross had his singing voice to the very, very end. This is someone who was freebasing for forever. <laughs> Seemingly for I should say forever. For a decade yeah. or so. And yet, yeah. And it did not ravage his voice, which is amazing. And he was, every day was a miracle. It's really rare for someone to telegraph their death in the public eye to the extent that Kraz was doing. He, was, he would say, whether it was in a documentary or interviews with you guys, that he knew that basically the Grim Reaper was coming soon and every day was a blessing. He had diabetes. He had multiple stents and heart attacks. He had a transplanted liver. He had a, a lot of health problems and yet, yes, was on stage singing with all this power and passion, but it was almost like, it was almost miraculous every time he did that. We know from the documentary that his wife, Jen, was even as a few, we know from the documentary that even a few years ago, his wife, Jen, was actively preparing herself for his death. So this wasn't, on the one hand, this wasn't a shock to anyone, I'm sure, including himself. On the other hand, he was tweeting, and you know, we didn't even talk about that. One of the best tweeters who ever lived, uh, Jeremy Gordon for the Times did a nice piece about that, like an all-time great tweeter. It's really corny, but I was very amused by the fact that he and Roger McGuinn, the birds, were tweeting at each other 
back and forth, sometimes friendly, sometimes not so much until Crosby eventually blocked McGuinn. You know, McGuinn unfollowed me so that we all have we, we all have our issues. But so there, there was that. David Crosby tweeted multiple times the day before his death. So in that sense, it really was a shock. Crosby on Twitter just reintroduced that whole uh, let my freak flag fly rebel guy to a whole new audience. Because here's this guy on Twitter saying whatever he wants. And yeah, he's going to piss some people off and maybe maybe end some relationships like he had early in his life. He's like doing it in a whole new way and introducing that whole attitude to like a whole new generation of people. Some of them probably didn't know who he was or didn't know much about his music, but he he got all these followers of people like, can you believe what this guy is saying on Twitter about Kanye West or the doors? (laughs) It completely reinvigorated his whole persona. And he tweeted 70,000 times. (laughs) It's pretty (laughs) remarkable. It really was when you think of all the kind of famous people who pay people to tweet for them and tweet the right things and and each tweet has to go through a committee of people and everything. Here he was just being like, I fucking hate the doors or whatever in the middle of the night and arguing with random people. It's really, I guess, Steve Van Zandt of the East Street Band is a little bit like that. But here was Cross, a generational icon, a figure from Woodstock fighting with, you know, Joe339 in the middle of the night on Twitter. It's just absolutely classic. And what was so classic. funny was fans would draw pictures of him and be like, hey, Cross, I drew a picture of you. And he goes, that's heinous. That's fucking ugly. It's just... <laughs> So I think the music world is still dealing with his loss. And it's interesting that Neil Young, who wouldn't take his calls in the end after his death, did release a really nice statement about him, focusing on the good times. Neil Neil would always say that Crosby was the real spark plug of that band. Like when it was really, when they were firing on all cylinders to continue the spark plug analogy. But if you look at footage, there's some, in 1970, CSNY did a series of shows that the Fillmore East, and they filmed two of them completely, and all this backstage stuff, and that footage is still sitting in a vault somewhere, which is really a shame. But there, a little bits of it have come out. There's a version of a Southern Man, and Crosby is just lost. He's just playing that 12-string rhythm guitar, the smile on his face. He's just lost in the music. And I think Neil just loved that about him. He really believed, Crosby really believed in that band, I think, the most of any of those guys. It's funny, I was thinking about the enduring influence of CSN, which is substantial. There were a whole wave of bands that sounded like them. There will be again. Even Boy Genius, who include Phoebe Bridgers, who Cross feuded with on Twitter over something dumb, paid homage to Crosby, Stills, and Nash by sitting in the exact configuration of them for the cover of their first EP. But then I was thinking about Fleet Foxes, and then I remember what Cross said about Fleet Foxes, so I won't use that as an example. Someone random tweeted at him back in 2017, Fleet Foxes have drawn a lot of inspiration from CSN. What do you think of their music? He wrote, could use some better songs. (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. He was right. (laughs) Gracious as always. Cross was an absolute legend, and you worked on, he did an advice column for Rolling Stone called Ask Kraz, and you worked on it with him, Andy? Yeah, it was so much fun. I'd say to him, I'm like, David, are there any topics that are off limits? Would anything offend you? No, never. I'll take anything. <laughs> Live on camera, I would hand him note cards that he'd never seen before. If he would answer the most personal sex questions or anything, he didn't care at all. And he was so funny. I'd sit there and just laugh my ass off as he went to long tirades about oral sex and how to do it right and everything. He would just talk about anything. 
and didn't care the camera was there. It was the same if I turned the camera off and we were talking, he was the same person. He was such a genuine guy. And he would literally like, you, you observed this too, I think, Andy, back in, I guess it was the 06 tour. He didn't have like stage clothes. Whatever he was wearing backstage, rumpled jeans and a, a shirt with a hole in it, it'd be like, showtime. He'd be like, okay. And he'd go out on stage. <laughs> it wasn't like, I'm going to change into my costume. He just literally was, he was just that guy all the time. And that's our show for today. Please go and subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And maybe leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always deeply appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Should we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord, we get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.